This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day to day and find entertainment and inspiration from the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, multipreneur Brooklyn Beckham has definitely found his life's purpose this time. Honest. And columnist Marina Hyde is here for it. As more and more performers are finding themselves priced out of performing, comedian Nish Kumar reflects on a love-hate relationship with the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Journalist Jess Cartner-Morley looks at whether we finally reached peak WhatsApp. And finally, writer Daniel Dylan Ray asks, where are all the music lovers in their 30s? Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Now, at just 23 years old, Brooklyn Beckham offspring of Britain's most commercially successful couple, David and Victoria, has had three callings already, with many more potentially in the pipeline. Blinded by this polymath's endless talent, Marina Hyde wonders, what high-profile profession will Beckham Jr. be drawn to next? Read by Daniela Isaacs. Can the most blatant nepotism sometimes add to the gaiety of the nations? It depends. In the old days, the eldest son of British notables might be sent out to rule as proprietor of the province of Maryland, which feels less than ideal. While other scions were elevated to administer 50,000 square miles of India on the basis they were both clubbable and semi-adequate lower-order batsmen. Hand on heart, however, I cannot fault the -the state-of-the-art system of turd polishing that gives Brooklyn Beckham a hilarious new career once a year. In these straitened times, I simply do not wish to deprive myself of the amusement. I have hugely enjoyed every single one of the high-profile professions thus far embraced by Brooklyn, aged 23. Footballer, art photographer, published monograph author, model and now chef. Is there nothing he can do? If there is, I am sure none of us wishes to find out about it. Where was I before the eldest son of David and Victoria Beckham was being promoted into the sidebar of my consciousness thrice weekly with a series of impossibly gilded professional ventures from whose comic implosion he seems able to move onwards and ever upwards with consummate ease? Wherever it was, it wasn't a very happy place. And like I say, the fact that Beckham Jr. is typically offered a brand ambassadorship as opposed to an actual ambassadorship feels like progress of a sort in our septic aisle. Better a sponsored cleansing regime than an ethnic cleansing regime. 
A full rundown of the more priceless career ventures would be impossible, but special mention must be made of the Penguin Random House collection of Brooklyn's photography, which featured iconic images, such as an elephant taken against the light so that only the background could be clearly discerned, glossed by the self-penned caption, Elephants in Kenya. So hard to photograph, but incredible to see. Or perhaps you prefer the blurred one of a restaurant dinner. I like this picture. It's out of focus, but you can tell there's a lot going on. A launch party at Christie's London would accompany the work's publication. This week, Brooklyn graces the cover of Variety's Young Hollywood issue, despite in no sense being part of what we'd call Hollywood. According to the cover headline, Brooklyn Pelts Beckham, heir of Britain's other royal family, has Instagram eating out of his hand. Does he? No idea, darling. He certainly has 14 million followers, and we are informed that last Valentine's Day, he and his new wife, Nicola Peltz, baked heart-shaped pizzas in a Vogue video that's been viewed more than three million times. At present, Variety insists that Brooklyn is eyeing a food empire, which, if the accompanying interview is anything to go by, currently consists of Brooklyn making fish and chips for the interviewer in a random cottage on his billionaire father-in-law's estate in Mount Kisco, New York, to which he has puttered up by golf cart from one of the grounder bits. Brooklyn only has to discard two tries at battered Philip before producing something he feels he can serve to the magazine's emissary and still have the journalist get back to the office without food poisoning so he's able to file the article. A tiny part of me wonders whether any chef throwing away two versions of fried fish before he got one that conformed to basic food safety standards would be something of a red flag. But I fully salute the interviewer's spiritual constitution as well as his physical one. We had this idea, reveals our serial innovator, of why he and his new wife are now known as the Peltz Beckhams. We kind of combined our last names. I was just like, oh, we could start a new thing. So yes, you have to have a pretty strong stomach to swallow lines like that and not give them both barrels. Double barrels. Whatever. But it's not just botched fish suppers for Brooklyn. His longer-term dreams are even more entrepreneurial, we learn, and he hopes to use television to ensconce himself in the food world, or indeed, food to ensconce himself in the television world. I've always said to my wife, says Beckham Peltz, we should actually do a reality TV show because she's so funny. Go on. I want to have so many TV shows and hopefully one day open up a pub in LA because LA needs a pub. The interviewer drops that, while he won't share specifics, he is planning to launch a branded product in the source department later this year. Naturally, there will be those who wonder at Brooklyn's inability to have what other mortals might regard as amateur hobbies without considering them nascent professional empires. It does seem likely to be linked to having grown up in a family where even private downtime is tirelessly packaged and commercialised. Whole acres of the Beckham's parents' social media feature supposedly intimate moments shared with millions. You know the sort of thing. Victoria addressing her husband and daughter via her Insta with a photo and caption along the lines of Love you so much, Daddy and Harper. Kisses. I'm certainly not questioning the expression of love, merely the efficiency. 
After all, if one did wish to unleash a term of endearment on the child sitting right next to one on a yacht, surely the most efficient way to do so is to simply turn to that child and deliver it vocally rather than typing it into Instagram, editing it, scaling it, then mediating it via Facebook server farms and one's 30 million followers. This, perhaps, is the context in which a hobby, at which you are no more than tenuously adequate, feels like a potential empire. I found what I absolutely love to do a little later in my life, explains Brooklyn, aged 23, but I absolutely love it. As for the previous professional callings, I was still trying to find that one thing I would literally die for, and I found that with cooking. It seems unlikely to come to that, and shortly after this declaration, Brooklyn grabs a bottle of beer and poodles back off to the big house in his golf cart. No doubt there's already some joyless Martin Luther out there who will one day nail his 95 thesis on some Instagram wall and demand that the practice of celebrity nepotism be ended immediately. Until then, I am absolutely here for Brooklyn's latest incarnation, and whatever next year's turns out to be. Has he not entertained us? Wittingly or unwittingly, let's not be fussy. That was Brooklyn Beckham's ever-evolving career path is a balm in our dark times by Marina Hyde, read by Daniela Isaacs. Next, Edinburgh Fringe Festival has been an essential amplifier for up-and-coming talent in the arts, but in particular for comedians trying to break into a notoriously cutthroat industry. British stand-up and television presenter Nish Kumar has both his career and love life to thank for the annual offering. However, the festival stands at a crossroads, with costs for performers soaring and many younger acts staying away. But, says Kumar, it still offers comics a boot camp like no other. Read by Rick Samada. At the last Edinburgh Fringe BC, before Covid, more than 3 million tickets were sold for 3,841 shows at 323 venues, reported the New York Times. Those numbers, according to one comedian who attended, me, are loads. For what started as a side event to the International Festival, it is staggering. To performers, the Fringe has become a combination of arts festival summer camp, trade show, shop window, and breeding ground for alcoholism. But with reports that artists are turning their backs on it in the face of escalating costs, does it have a future? If it does, will there be performers, or will it all be holograms like ABBA and Tupac? The first of those questions is worth considering. The second was a waste of my time and yours. The answer is obviously yes. But first, because I am pathologically incapable of engaging with any subject without centering myself in it, a little of my own history with the festival. I have performed at almost every conceivable level, from student comedy and fringe-free shows to theatre, stand-up comedy and presenting for the BBC. This year, I will do a week of shows performing Your Power, Your Control, which I began work on at 2021's greatly reduced and socially distanced festival. I first attended the Fringe in 2006 as a member of the Durham Review, 
a student comedy group that is like the Cambridge Footlights, minus the prestige and the everything. We spent all day handing out flyers with our faces on them to uninterested passers-by before performing an hour of sketch comedy. Our evenings were then spent drinking badly watered-down lager from the venue bar and trying to see as many shows as humanly possible. The truth is, I was in heaven. I was a lovely brown sponge soaking up everything I could. I saw Greg Davies screaming in a portable building as part of the sketch group We Are Clang, an experience I would have subsequently at even closer quarters as a contestant on Taskmaster, a show the bearded weirdo Alex Horn developed initially for The Fringe. I also saw a seminal performance by the even more bearded and even weirder Daniel Kitson, a comedian, playwright and professional recluse. The Fringe never stopped being an education for me. When I was starting to write hour-long shows of my own, I went to see Bridget Christie and realised everything I was doing was shit and needed to be overhauled. I have watched shows by contemporaries, such as my ex-flatmate turned sitcom superstar Rose Matafeo, the sketchmaster's Lazy Susan, and the genius-slash-serial-award-loser James Acaster that reminded me why I fell in love with comedy. When I hosted Edinburgh Nights for the BBC in 2018 and 2019, I was even forced to watch things that weren't comedy. I saw Rachel Young marry live music, dance and Afrofuturism in nightclubbing, a show that paid homage to Grace Jones. I saw Pussy Riot and was fortunate enough to interview them, where I was informed that they hadn't been smuggled out of Russia to perform at the festival, as reported in the press, but had travelled by unicorn. When I wasn't watching shows, I was performing, learning how to be a comedian, step by excruciating step. In 2010 and 2011, I performed in a sketch double act with Tom Neenan. We were called The Gentlemen of Leisure, and the show was a parody of the culture show on BBC Two, and was exactly as financially profitable as it sounds. But we learned a huge amount about joke writing, and the partnership ended up with Tom becoming my partner in crimes against comedy on various radio shows and The MASH Report. Meanwhile, I was doing stand-up on The Free Fringe, where the audience members aren't charged, but can offer a donation to the performers on leaving the venue. The aim is for the donation to be in cash, but we were often compensated in old playing cards, flyers for our own show and bits of string. Still, these were formative experiences performing on 25 consecutive days, accelerating my development more than months of infrequent gigging on the open mic circuit in London possibly could. This is not to say that the festival has been without its lows. And my gods, I am Hindu. Those lows were low. In 2007, I was chased off stage by a heavy metal band, The venue had been double-booked and the band and its fans were not in the mood for my brand of whimsy. That year, my student sketch group did a gig that went so badly that we exited through a fire escape so as not to have to speak to any of the other performers. In 2011, Tom and I arrived at our venue to find a bucket where the second row of seating should have been, as the cave we were performing in had sprung a leak. In 2013, a group of audience members waited outside to beat me up. Despite all this, I love The Fringe. It is where I learned how to be a comedian and created work opportunities that I continue to benefit from. On my 30th birthday, I was nominated for the Edinburgh Comedy Award 
and offered a slot on Have I Got News For You and Live at the Apollo. Then, Dave Dodocty and I spent an hour searching for chips at 6am, so it wasn't all glamour. The producers of the MASH report saw me do a political show in the aftermath of the Brexit vote in 2016 and felt I would be a good fit as host for the nascent TV series. At times, it can feel as though defending the fringe is morally indefensible, like eating meat or supporting Manchester United. Landlords have been encouraging students to stay in their flats in August, leading to a shortage of properties and driving up prices. The Fringe Society was forced to launch a drive to find Edinburgh residents who would be willing to rent properties to performers for less than £280 a person a week. Some performers are staying out of town, in caravans or on campsites. Meanwhile, the Fringe Society is facing criticism for scrapping its app, a valuable tool for performers to direct audiences to their shows, sell more tickets, and hopefully mitigate some of those astronomical rents. The Fringe is supposed to be a place where performers can come to experiment and evolve. However, it is turning into a playground for those born wealthy. Like Monaco, but with more people who went to clown school. It has been heading this way for years, and I am not exactly an example to the contrary. I grew up middle class and went to a fancy university that subsidised my first two trips here. More significantly, when I started doing solo stand-up shows, my first three were paid for by a management company. At the time, the going rate for a solo show, including venue hire, accommodation and PR costs, was about £10,000. I was performing in venues that were so small that even if I had sold every single ticket, I would still have lost money. It would be disingenuous not to acknowledge my fortune. It would make me no better than the swines in our cultural and political life who are the children of wealth, but proudly proclaim that they did it on their own without any help. It is our most pernicious myth, aside from the one that Brussels sprouts taste nice if you fry them with bacon. Your dad bought you a flat, and the thing that tastes good is bacon. Sprouts taste like small, hard farts. This is to say nothing of the woeful underrepresentation of female acts, ethnic minorities, and members of the LGBTQ community. Organisations such as Fringe of Colour and Best in Class work hard to address this. But wholesale change is needed. No one seems to be able to put the finger on who is to blame. Landlords, venues, PRs, Edinburgh University, and the Fringe Society blame each other. But in the end, the bill is footed by performers. It is no wonder that younger comedians are increasingly seeing the benefits of social media exposure to their careers. The startup costs required are minuscule in comparison to those of doing a show on the fringe. But allowing the fringe to slip slowly into obsolescence would be a shame. At its core, it offers performers a boot camp to hone their skills and a collision of different styles of performance. Being a performer at the Fringe can feel like being a character on a film set in Las Vegas, because the house always wins. And I mean one of the bleak Vegas films, not Ocean's Eleven. There is no sign of Clooney or Pitt. The only time it resembles Ocean's Eleven is when you hear some drama student attempt a truly disgraceful Cockney accent that would make even Don Cheadle say, Bleeding it, governor. I still believe in the Fringe. 
Perhaps that is inevitable, given my whole life is tied to it, like a pointless forest gump. My birthday is in August, so I can measure my life through the festivals I have attended. My first years I was there, I spent almost every waking moment with Tom and Ed Gamble. In the past three years, I have been best man at their weddings. In 2010, I met a woman who was funny and charming, but whom I presumed disliked me intently. In October, we will have been in a relationship for ten years. I cannot separate my own life from the fringe and the city of Edinburgh. It has given so much to me professionally and personally. But even I understand that it stands at a crossroads. It must find a way to recapture its egalitarian spirit to remain relevant. It is not enough for charitable organisations to fill in the gaps. Systemic change is needed. I say this not out of malice, but simply because I strongly believe, to quote my own mother, if you love something, you must be willing to relentlessly point out everything that is wrong with it. A phrase she often says to and about me. That was... It's where I learned how to be a comedian. Nish Kumar on why the Edinburgh Fringe still matters. By Nish Kumar. Read by Rick Samada. We'll be back after this short break. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Now. From pictures of puppies to deadly political manoeuvres, WhatsApp is the world's most popular messaging platform with its ability to democratise friendships and retain connections far and wide. The free service continues to bring joy to many people. But the way we use the service is evolving and increasingly infiltrating our lives. Is it starting to lose its appeal? Jess Cartner-Morley investigates. Read by Daniela Isaacs. Every morning before she leaves for work, Rosie, a 28-year-old physiotherapist, chats with her three housemates. Sometimes they commiserate or celebrate over the weather or football results. Sometimes one of them has good news about a job interview to share or lets off steam about their latest dating app disaster. The friends moved out of the house they shared in Bristol last summer when they left college and they live in different towns now but their WhatsApp group, named after the road they lived on together, starts pinging with messages around 7.30am most days. I live on my own now and I miss having company, says Rosie. Some of the others have moved back in with their parents, which has its own challenges. We make each other laugh and keep each other sane. We don't get to meet up much, but the group chat has kept our little gang alive. The first of my WhatsApp group chats to light up today was my Wordle one. Every Wordle group chat has one member who gets it in three lines before anyone else has both eyes open, right? Next was the group I have with some of my oldest, best friends, which is the sort of group chat where jokes that make no sense to anyone else make me snort with laughter. 
Then there was an emoji-laden update on a group set up for a snazzy upcoming birthday party and, for balance, an update with photos from a neighbour about the snail problem in her garden, as well as individual voice notes which had arrived while I was sleeping from my son and my cousin in Thailand and South Africa respectively. My email inbox is just work and spam and newsletters I can't figure out how to unsubscribe from, says my friend Simon. My Instagram feed is gorgeous to look at, but it's just entertainment to be scrolled with a pinch of salt. WhatsApp is the bit on my phone where my real life happens. With 2 billion users, WhatsApp is the most popular messaging platform in the world, ahead of Facebook Messenger, 988 million, and WeChat, 1.2 billion. Launched by Yahoo alumni Brian Acton and Jan Coombe in 2009 and bought by Facebook five years later, WhatsApp has infiltrated our lives at every level, from international politics, Boris Johnson was widely reported to have exchanged private messages with Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, to the politics of the school gate. In Bond Street's fashion flagships, sales assistants who once waited for big spenders to walk through the doors now WhatsApp photos of the hottest new deliveries to favoured customers as soon as they land in the store. Often, the sale has gone through and the package dispatched by courier without the clothes ever hitting the shop floor. But have we reached peak WhatsApp? Lockdown was the platform's age of innocence, with neighbourhood group chats pinging with pithy one-liners and a never-ending stream of cat videos keeping morale high between isolated work-from-home colleagues. As the honeymoon period wears off, WhatsApp is starting to feel like yet another work stream, on top of all those unanswered emails and voicemails you never get around to listen to. The blue tick system that shows whether a message has been read by the recipient, which seems so useful at first, has become a social etiquette minefield. The modern WhatsApp user has more correspondence to deal with than a Bridgerton sister after the Queen's ball. This year has also shown WhatsApp in a seedier light, under high court scrutiny over a lost password at the Wagatha Christie trial, and with a cameo role in the downfall of a Prime Minister, as messages revealed what Johnson did in fact know about Chris Pincher. Meanwhile, the recent introduction of a new stealth mode allowing users to hide their online or last-seen status from specific contacts suggests the beginning of WhatsApp fatigue. Another promised update will allow users to exit a group silently with only the administrators notified of their departure. Text messaging used to be a blunt back-and-forth exchange, a little like communicating by leaving notes on the fridge. By folding photos, videos and other people seamlessly into the exchange, WhatsApp chats have evolved to better mimic real-life conversation. Add a memoji for a facial expression, a gif for a laugh. The assumption that face-to-face -face communication is irreplaceable, already eroded by the smartphone era, has been further challenged by the enforced isolation of lockdowns and the long tail of work from home that has followed. There is no conversation so important or so delicate it can't be conducted over text these days. Jill Biden recently revealed that she and her husband conduct arguments over text to avoid being overheard by the ever-present security detail. But it is the group chat functionality that has embedded itself in our everyday lives. The beauty of a group chat is not just its ability to keep a connection alive regardless of geography and time zone, 
But in democratizing the friendship group, says journalist Scarlett Conlon, who has upward of a dozen groups active at any one time, and others archived but ready to jump back into life. Who will win Strictly, for instance, is dormant for nine months of each year, but on fire during the autumn. I still chat to lots of people one-on-one as well, says Conlon, but group chats are more inclusive of people who historically might have got information second-hand, because staying in touch maybe isn't their strong point, or it's not their thing to text a lot. People who struggle to find an in can send a one-line update or gift to a group and it keeps them in the loop. I think what WhatsApp does for group friendships is brilliant, agrees my sister Alice. I don't know how many group chats she's on, but she's in five different groups that I am also in, as well as our one-on-one chat, so I'm guessing quite a few. It shifts the centre of gravity away from multiple individual friendships, which inevitably ebb and flow, and puts it in the middle of the group, where it is accessible to everyone. The group becomes more bonded and more balanced because no one is taking on all the emotional labour of arrangements and no one is getting left out. Not everyone likes the background hum of cat videos, petition links and who had what for lunch. My technophobe father abruptly left the family group one day, not realising the group would be notified, exclaiming to my mother that he didn't want to read about everyone's sausages, says Joseph Kocharian, fashion director of Attitude magazine. My brother stays out of the chat too and lets the matriarchs of the family and myself, the gay son, run riot. Star turns on the chat include Kocharian's aunt, whose commentary on a pilgrimage to Lindisfarne read like an Alan Bennett story, and his late grandmother, who posted red and black hearts in keeping with her Cruella de Vil aesthetic of monochrome animal print and Chanel. She was strengthening her brand image on WhatsApp. Neighbourhood WhatsApp groups that sprang up during lockdown have evolved to reflect shifts in mood and priorities. Where I live, there are weeks when they are set by the national news agenda, a community hive mind getting together to navigate the visa system for Ukrainian refugees, moments when local issues dominate, anyone know if the pizza place is closing for good, and slow news days when a lost tortoise gets top billing. The chat that can tip even tolerant users over the edge is the hen night one, which operates on an emotional volume set to ear-splitting for months, full of granular organisational details. My friend Violet is on one of these, with men and women I've never met updating me on childcare arrangements. That is your stuff. Everyone has enough of their own stuff. 30 people don't need to know your logistics. But WhatsApp is not just for friends and family. In Westminster, it rules. I couldn't do my job without WhatsApp, says Jessica Elgott, the Guardian's chief political correspondent. There is no way you could operate as a political journalist without it. Number 10 uses the platform to send out statements, party communications go through broadcast groups, and there is a huge press gallery group. Alliances between the modern intake of Tory MPs are now defined by who they're in a WhatsApp group with, rather than which club they belong to. In WhatsApp, Westminster has found a platform that turbocharges its favourite sport, gossip. This is dangerous. MPs can be caught off guard by the sotto voce feel of a message tapped onto a tiny green box, mistaking it for genuine privacy. What's surprising is how indiscreet even experienced politicians can be, says Elgot. It gives you a sense of being among friends, but a big WhatsApp group isn't like that. 
Last year, screen grabs emerged showing Nadine Dorries being removed from a hundred-strong group of Tory MPs over her fangirling of Boris Johnson. Steve Baker, former chair of the European Research Group, removed her with the comment, enough is enough. WhatsApp is trialling an edit button, which will allow for more subtle redactions than the this message has been deleted function. The future of WhatsApp is still uncertain. Anyone remember how crazy we were for House Party back in April 2020? In the UK, it is used by 75% of the population aged from 16 to 64, but take-up in the US, where SMS is still dominant, is only 23%. All over the world, it is less popular with teenagers than with older age groups. Younger people already use the private story settings to create their own friendship group chats on Instagram and other platforms, rather than using those platforms to broadcast to everyone who follows them. And outside the worlds of politics and flagship fashion stores, WhatsApp has yet to be integrated into our ordinary work lives. My unscientific straw polling concluded that while most of us appreciate the -the off-the-record vibe of an unofficial team group chat with in-jokes and puppy photos, we draw the line at getting messaged by the boss. It feels like an invasion of what is supposed to be a safe space, as my friend Isabel puts it. While it would not be accurate to say that WhatsApp retains an air of innocence, it is implicated in too many Westminster plots for that to be true. It does have, still, a kind of youthful energy which other social platforms lack, having been either flatlined by marketing, Instagram, or bulldozed into party lines, Twitter. WhatsApp still feels like a connection, not a work stream. This has not escaped the notice of major brands. Most of us have got wise to the reality that storytelling is just a pretty word for being told why we should buy something. Next, surely, we need to steel ourselves against brands leveraging of the conversational back-and-forth format of WhatsApp into a business opportunity. Facebook, now Meta, the owner of WhatsApp since 2014, has so far honoured the wishes of the platform's founders to keep it free of advertisements. But many analysts believe that one of the drivers of the acquisition of WhatsApp was that it supplied Meta with the one piece of the contact puzzle that eluded it – personal mobile phone numbers. In which case, monetization of this data may be on the horizon. But for now, WhatsApp is where we go for a chat. When I'm walking home from work, I could look at the news on my phone or check my step count or update my to-do list, says Rosie, but I would much rather message my friends and find out what everyone's cooking for dinner. That was WhatsApp took over our phones, but did it have to take over our lives? By Jess Cartner-Morley, read by Daniela Isaacs. Finally, It would have been unimaginable for some in their 20s, but these days more and more friends are disengaging from a passion we once shared. Surely this is premature. Why, observes Daniel Dylan Ray, is this phenomenon so particular to music and what's driving the breakup? Read by Rick Samada. There are many things you notice as you plough deeper into your 30s. It's a transitional period with incredibly visible milestones. Babies, weddings, houses, more babies. What gets added to people's lives can feel loud and inescapable, but often what drifts away is less visible. 
For the last few years, I have felt the inescapable disappearance of music from my friends' lives. Even people with whom I have long-standing relationships that were born from a shared love of music have simply let it go, or let it fade deep into the background. A 2015 study of people's listening habits on Spotify found that most people stop listening to new music at 33. A 2018 report by Deezer had it at 30. In my 20s, the idea that people's appetite to consume new music regularly would be switched off like some kind of tap was ludicrous. However, now I'm 36, it's difficult to argue with. The capacity to be amazed, overwhelmed or sucker-punched by music remains a constant presence and ecstatic joy in my life. It's something I've experienced a million times, but when it hits, it still feels new. The late DJ Andrew Wetherill, with his boundless curiosity, knowledge and passion for music, right up until his untimely death, is my personal benchmark and inspiration. I write about music for a living, and naturally I don't expect others to maintain anywhere near the same level of interest. And not everyone reaches their 30s and gives up on music, as the success of BBC Radio 6 music shows. Not that there's anything wrong with tapping out, either. Interests and priorities change. A parent with two kids under five has things higher up their to-do list than checking out Jockstrap. Gigs become less attractive when a small person screams you awake at 5am. I get it. Nevertheless, it's a strange and alienating experience to have a fundamental part of your relationship with someone deteriorate. The shift is a subtle one. A sudden realisation that hits as the once regular conversation of what are you listening to is seemingly replaced permanently by what are you watching? I've lost count of the amount of free plus one tickets I've had go unaccounted for, the seat next to me becoming a coat stand, I've not been able to give away free tickets to see Nick Cave, staggeringly expensive arena pop shows, or even entire festival weekend passes. It's easy to chalk this up to simply getting older, as the rabid enthusiasm, naivety and passion of youth dwindles, but that has an ageist presumption baked into it. There may be more hurdles to committing to cultural discovery, but people don't become fundamentally less curious because they get older. Most people don't stop discovering new books, films, podcasts or TV. Yet music seems to be something that more commonly slips away, or is even perceived as something you're supposed to grow out of. Music is a key part of youthful identity formation. Once your idea of yourself becomes fixed, perhaps by distinct markers like marriage and kids, the need for it slips away. Sometimes when I speak to people about going to gigs, festivals or raves, I see an almost pitying look wash over their face. Really? You're still doing that? Bless as if clinging on represents some childish refusal to let go of youth, the equivalent of a balding mod refusing to shave off their depleting feather cut. One similarly aged and child-free friend who admits to a dwindling passion for music says it's a combination of going out less, and so music is no longer the centre of socialising, preferring to listen to podcasts and having more options available across streaming. Another simply says it's harder to muster that same level of excitement about anything, period. While one former consumer and maker of music happily admits that he now only really listens to three bands. 
This lack of interest in new music seems to coincide, or perhaps even feeds, huge surges in nostalgia around my age group. Take the odd phenomenon of so-called indie sleaze, with its warped, rose-tinted shutter glasses and desire to retroactively create something that didn't exist. Objectionable as that particular fetishism is, it's an interesting generational insight into how those staring down middle age recalibrate their relationship to music. Though I'm not begrudging anyone some nostalgia, the world can be an overflowing cesspit, and if using familiar music to ignite fond memories helps, then drink it up. Nor is there anything wrong with stepping away from the endless churn. I loved Emma Garland's recent article on deactivating her streaming accounts and giving up on endlessly chasing the zeitgeist, i.e. mediocre TV, simply because that's what's directing the conversation. Keeping up with new music can feel like an equally exhausting task bordering on the futile. I get numb from time to time too, and listening to albums can feel like going through the motions without absorbing anything. The sheer volume of culture makes it easy to feel as though we are trapped within a huge, content-spewing factory, working harder than ever to keep up with the production line. Stepping away from that madness makes sense. But this desertion of music that I have observed feels different. Less a tactical retreat, and more a mushrooming apathy or indifference. Trying to remain dedicated to music during these apparent wilderness years can be a lonely pursuit. Something you once associated with camaraderie, shared experience and collective memories becomes a one-way exchange. It's still special, and for many people that's how they prefer to enjoy music. And there's always community to be found online, though it's a thin substitute when you've known the real thing. While the thrill of falling in love with a record hasn't dimmed, it's dispiriting to know that you have a shrinking group of friends to share it with, as more people seemingly outgrow the one thing you never thought was possible to outgrow. That was Bring That Beat Back. Why are people in their 30s giving up on music? By Daniel Dylan Ray. Read by Rick Samada. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles are read by Daniela Isaacs and Rick Samada and presented by me, Savannah Ayoade Grease. This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. Original music by Axel Kakutier. The executive producer was Danielle Stevens. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.